teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. Today's uh, text, we're going to be going over 1 Samuel 30 and 31 and also 2 Samuel 1 and just the first four verses in chapter 2. We're obviously not going to cover all of that, but we're going to be looking at this period in David's life that I'm calling the fugitive freed, where we've seen all of David's period of time as a fugitive running from King Saul, and for 16 months he's been living among the Philistines, and we're going to see all of that come to a conclusion today. Uh, Rather than reading over four chapters, I'm just going to read the first four verses of 2 Samuel 2 because that's kind of where we're going to conclude. So 2 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 4, all the stuff I'll be reading will be up here on the screen. So hear now the word of the living God. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. In the early months, days and months of 1942, it was pretty dark days for the Allies. That was certainly true uh, in the European theater, but it was also true in the Pacific theater. Starting with the events of Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Japan had been crushing all opposition in the Pacific. They had uh, had a significant victory, obviously, at Pearl Harbor. They had swept American troops out of the Philippines, the British out of Burma and East Indies. They had uh, run, conquered us in Guam, Wake Island, and destroyed all Allied air power in Southeast Asia. The only slight glimmer of hope was that in the Battle of the Coral Sea early in 1942, we had more or less kind of drawn to uh, an even... And, and both sides just kind of uh, receded. But other than that, it was victory after victory after victory for the Japanese. Everything looked pretty grim in the Pacific theater. And then the Japanese planned on invading Midway, where they were hoping to use to further extend towards Hawaii and keep extending their empire. And on June 4 through 7, 1942, the Battle of Midway happened And in that battle, in three days, the entire course of the Pacific War was changed. America, unbeknownst to the Japanese, had broken the Japanese code. We had sent some fake messages saying Midway was short on water, which it was not. And the Japanese used the code word for where they were attacking, saying it was short on water. So we knew it was coming uh, the battle was coming to Midway, and therefore Admiral Chester Nimitz and his troops were ready when the Japanese came. And the Japanese, in three days, lost four aircraft carriers, one heavy cruiser, and 248 planes. And it was a blow against the Japanese Navy from which they never recovered. 
we suddenly had greater sea power even in the Pacific than the Japanese did. One historian said this was the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of all naval warfare. There was never a turn like this, and it happened in three days. Everything changed. Now, I'm bringing this up because when we saw David last week, when we ended, David was sitting in Ziklag, and you remember he'd been chased out of Israel. He had spent a decade being chased by Saul. He had finally given in to his own fears, didn't seek the Lord. He went to live among the Philistines. He was rejected by them when they were going into battle, and when he returned home, his hometown was completely burned and destroyed. He discovered that his wives and the wives and children of all of his men had been carried away captive. All of his possessions were gone, and he was sitting in ruins. That's where David finds himself at this point in his life. And yet the text I just read is David going to Hebron and all of Judah saying, hey, why don't you be our king? How do we get there in a few minutes of reading and even in David's life in a really short period of time? How does it happen? Because it's very similar to what goes on at Midway. Everything has changed. And what does it mean for us? Well, let's start. I want to paint the picture and remind us of where we're at. So we're going to start in the depths of despair because to understand God's deliverance of David and what happens, we have to begin more or less with the bad news. Like you can't move to the gospel until we've heard the law. We don't understand what we're being saved from until we know that we actually need to be saved. So we begin in the depths of despair. And 1 Samuel 30 paints this as David, of all of David's life, which has been tough, for a decade he's been chased by the king who's trying to kill him, but it is the darkest moment of the night for David. And we read in 1 Samuel 30, verses 3 to 6, that they come to Ziklag, they find it destroyed, everything carried away and taken captive. David weeps, we're told in verse 4. David and the men wept until they had no strength left to weep. And at that moment, David surely thinks, as awful as it gets, it can't get worse. And then all of a sudden, he starts hearing the men whispering and muttering, and what are all of his men saying? This is your fault, David, and we're going to stone you, and we're going to kill you. And so David realizes, I didn't think it could get any worse, but lo and behold, it just got worse. I mean, the, the only people I had on my side have now turned against me. And so uh, they're, they're talking about doing this because the men have just had it. They're like, we've been on the run with you for all of these years. We've been down here among the Philistines, and now even our sons and daughters are carried away. Our wives are gone. We have nothing left, David. And so this is as bad as it can get. This is the depth of despair for David. It's moments like this that cause David to pen Psalm 22 where he begins and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know exactly when David wrote those words, but it certainly could have come out of this event right here. Put yourself in David's place. If you've ever been in a place where you're looking around and it is like everything I thought I had, Everything has been removed. It is all burned. Everything is a disaster. That's exactly where David is at at this moment, despite everything else that has happened in his life. So now notice what we're told is David finally, for the first time since 1 Samuel 23, for the first time in seven chapters, we find David, instead of turning to his own resources, turns to God. And we read in verse 6, David found strength and the Lord is God. And in verses seven and eight, he finally calls Ahimelech the priest who's been there with him the whole time, and he says, 
bring the ephod. This is the way that they would seek the will of God. And David begins crying out to God, and he begins uh, seeking God's face. And as I said last week, the good news for us about God being our faithful father is you and I might not respond to David at this moment, but God does. God hears David's cry. He is quick to respond to David and to answer David's inquiries. And so he answers David and he promises to deliver him. And so I do want to remind us before we turn to how everything changes here, David in this moment is being a good example. We've seen sometimes David's a good example and sometimes David's a bad example. There are times we follow what he does, like when he refuses to reach out in vengeance and strike Saul, good example. When he tells his men, mount your horse, we're going to go down and wipe out the wicked man Nabal, bad example, okay? You got to be careful which time you're following David. Here he's being a good example because God is letting us know in our deepest moments of distress and despair, where should we turn? To God. Is that what we want to do? Very often it's the last place we want to turn because we believe falsely that God is going to be harsh and judgmental and say, oh, you didn't seek me when things were well. Now you're in trouble and you come to me. But see, God's not that way. God is a gracious, loving Father. And so in our moments of despair, what you need is not even another friend. It's not a good book. It's not somebody else come in. It's not a political solution. What you need is you need God. In your depth of despair, you and I need to turn to God, and that's what David does here. And that's how everything starts to change. And so we move from that into the fugitive being freed. And you see a whole series of steps of how God is going to deliver David in just quick succession. First, we read that God delivers the Amalekites. They're the ones who had gone after David's village. And if you remember, they're the ones who Saul was supposed to have wiped out. So I'm sure David is probably thinking, great, if Saul had done what Saul was supposed to do, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. But he didn't, and so now it's visited upon me. And so, but God delivers them into David's hands. They pursue the Amalekites, and on the way, they find this Egyptian on the side of the road. I won't put these verses up. There's just too many things to go through. But this Egyptian's on the side of the road, and the Amalekites were cruel people. And so this guy couldn't keep up. He was not feeling well. So his master said, well, you're just going to lay out here in the desert and die. This is not being left on the side of the road in downtown Annapolis. This is in the middle of nowhere where the man's going to die. They leave him with no food, no water, and he's going to die. But unbeknownst to them, this evil treatment is going to come back on their own heads because the guy doesn't die. He's sitting there, and David comes running up says, who are you? And he says, well, I'm an Egyptian slave. I was with these Amalekites that just raided this place called Ziklag. David says, really? Well, <laughs> could you give me some information about where the Amalekites are? And the guy says, sure, as long as you promise you won't hand me back over to them in the middle of all this stuff, I'll take you down to them. And so David now has the way to get down to find them, and he gets down there, and what we read in verses 16 and 7, or right before verse 16, is that the Amalekites are drunk. In fact, it uses the same language from the golden calf incident back in Exodus 32. They're drunk, and they are having a party. And so David crests the hill, and rather than finding an enemy flush and ready for battle, what he finds is an enemy in complete disarray. They're having a huge party, and they are drunk off their tails. Now, 
in case you're not a military guy, let me tell you, that's a military, that's your dream when you come upon somebody, okay? I assume you don't have to have been in the Marine Corps to figure that out, right? Drunk, disarrayed enemy, good for you, right? So this is what David finds. He comes over the hill, and so we read that the Egyptians, starting in verse 16 and 17, he leads David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the amount of great amount of plunder that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. And so David fights them from dusk until evening the next day for basically 24 hours, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off in camels. Now what's interesting is, says you know that only 400, just a small part of the force gets away, but how many guys does David have total? 400. The little part that escaped is equal to David's entire group. So the Amalekites are a far larger force, and David would have been in trouble probably had he tried to face them in open field and they were ready. But fortunately for David, God has orchestrated. They are drunk. They are in disarray. And so um, they're not ready for war. And God delivers them into David's hand. And David wins a crushing total victory. This is not unlike at Midway. We know you're coming. We set everything up. We are ready for you. And at the end of three or four days, you are in big trouble. And that's exactly what happens with David. And notice the text tells us that David recovers everything that had been taken away. It goes into great detail on this. In verses 18 and 19, it tells us multiple times. Notice it says he recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. In verse 19, nothing is missing. And then as if that's not enough, it tells us young or old, boy or girl, plunder, or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. Why do you think he keeps stressing this? What's the point we're supposed to get out of this text? He got it all. So you guys could have a doctorate in theology, right? He got everything. Whatever they had taken, none of it had been used. None of it had been killed. None of it was destroyed. David got everything back. Because the text is wanting us to understand, God wants to speak to you and to me to understand. When God's anointed king goes forth to battle, he routes the enemies of God, and he recovers God's captive people. Not one of them is missing. And that's good news for you and me. When Jesus went forth on the cross to do battle for God, not one of God's people is going to be left out of that conquering number. He is not going to lose one. And that's exactly what goes. Consider the depth of what's going on here. Just 24 hours before, David is sitting there, and it is all gone, and it appears there is no hope of getting it back, and the men are going to stone David. And now David is sitting there. The Amalekites are routed. They are gone, and David's counting everything, and is like, we didn't lose anything. We didn't lose a sheep. We didn't lose a pot, a pan. We didn't lose a single person, a boy, a wife. Everything is here. And David realizes, who is it that's done that for David? It's God. This isn't just David's military prowess. That's not the point we're getting out of the text. It's being put to us to understand it's God's anointed king that is going forth. And anointed king, of course, is the word Mashiach. It's Messiah. It's God's Messiah riding forth and doing this. And so notice the next thing that David does is he shares the spoils of his victory with his people. And I won't go into all the verses. You remember there have been 200 men who were left behind. They were too tired to fight. And when they show up, 
back there, the 400 guys, what do they want to do with the spoils? Hey, the guy can have his wife back, but he gets none of his stuff back because he was too weak. And David says, no, 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 we can't do that. This is the Lord's spoils. Yahweh gave this to us. We are not going to be stingy with it. This is a good lesson to learn. We've been blessed. We're supposed to be a blessing. We're supposed to pass this on. We're not going to keep it. And furthermore, David goes to, in verse 26, we read, when David arrives in Ziklag, he's sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were his friends saying, here is a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. And so David is being generous, not only with his own men, he's being generous with everyone. He gives to the weary soldiers, he gives to the people of Judah, he doesn't keep the spoils, he shares them. Because David says, look, this is plunder that has been taken from the enemies of God. This isn't mine just to dispose with, this isn't mine to do what I want. God gave it, and I am supposed to freely give it away. Because when God's anointed king wins the battle, he shares the spoils of victory with all of God's people. Can you remember in the New Testament, we're told when Jesus descended, he came down, and then he ascended, and he took captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. That's how the church is even formed, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus, the anointed king, is good to share the spoils of victory. And so when God gives to you and I, what are we supposed to do with it? Hoard it up, right? Because God might not give me enough, and I might not have enough for tomorrow. Is that what we're supposed to do? You remember in Y2K, there were actually Christians who were saying, I'm moving to a mountaintop, and I'm hoarding all of my stuff up, and I'm only, you know, and I'm getting a bunch of guns, by the way, because how I can really share Jesus with a hurting world in the wake of a disaster is I'll kill you if you come and try and get any of my stuff, right? Who thinks that's the way God wants us to be, right? See, that's the way David's, some of David's guys are. But David says, no, no, I am here. This is what God has given me. I will freely share with you. Now, as if that's not good enough, David has gone from sitting in a burned town losing everything, his men angry with him, to he's got spoils enough. He's got more than he had at the beginning of all of this, and he's sharing it out with everybody, including the people of Judah. Unbeknownst to David, what's going on with Saul at the exact same moment? Saul's dying at that exact moment. Saul's the one who has precipitated all of these events for David. And so 1 Samuel 31 recounts the death of Saul. And so what has happened here is God has delivered David completely from all of his enemies, including Saul, and David did not have to raise a hand against Saul. Time and again, people told David, you need to deal with Saul. Time and again, you need to kill him. You need to do this. And then, in fact, David had finally given in. And if David had marched with the Philistines in the battle, it might have been his hand that was bloodied with Saul's blood. But David had nothing to do with it. David was nowhere around. God has dealt with King Saul. And in fact, what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is because of that, David's even able to grieve for Saul. He's even able to say everyone should have a lament for Saul because David had nothing to do with the death of Saul. And this is again a picture for us. When we don't strike out or take vengeance ourselves, God is faithful to intervene in our behalf. And it's in essence God saying to us, if you put your hand on the sword, I won't touch it. 
But if you will step back, I will deal with the enemies that need to be dealt with. I will take care of what I need to. I wish we as the church today would hear and understand this. But is that an easy lesson to learn? It's easy to say when I'm sitting in here and I'm not in the heat of battle. But when someone does something evil to me, like, I mean, really evil, like cuts me off in traffic, right? My immediate response is, the Lord bless you. I know God will take care of this for you. Is that our response? That's not my response. And I don't even have to go to the big things. Can I tell you, David's facing something a little worse than being cut off in traffic, a little worse than a neighbor who said something nasty about them, than a coworker who was not carrying their fair share of the load. David's facing life and death, but he's learning if you don't take vengeance, God will deal with the situation. You can trust God to do it. But when David's put his own hand in, he ends up living among the Philistines. Now this is easy to say, hard lesson to learn because it requires faith. But I hear fear so much more easily than I hear faith. Now, as a result of that, because Saul is now removed from the picture, David, the exile, is able to return out of exile back into Judah. This is part of the text we read this morning. Remember, David has been gone for 16 months. He's not been able to go to his homeland. He's been in exile out of his own country. And in reality, he's been in exile for about a decade because even when he was in Judah, he was living in caves in the hills in the middle of the desert because the king was trying to kill him. This has gone on for almost a decade. And then suddenly in verses one to three, we read, David says, Yahweh, can I go back? And the Lord tells him, yes, and you are to go to Hebron. And so the fugitive returns. At long last, the exile is over. And notice they come back with their wives and their children and they're settling in the land. You've got a picture for a moment. What if you had been living what David had been living for a decade? How happy is this day? I mean, man, I have been brought out of exile. Everything I had feared is removed. All of the enemies are gone. I have received spoil and plunder from God's enemies given to me at the hand of Yahweh. I'm able to distribute it out to everyone else. Everyone is now speaking well of me, and I am back home, and the man who wanted me dead is gone, and I didn't do anything to do any of this. This is all the working of Yahweh. And as if that is not enough, the final point is we read in verse 4 that the men of Judah come to Hebron, and there they anoint David king over the house of Judah. Notice it doesn't tell us David starts saying, hey, guys, remember Samuel, the prophecy, I'm supposed to be the king? Why does David get anointed king? Because they come to him, and they say, you're the one who's supposed to be king. All of this was over a decade. David was a young teenage boy when all of this started. He is now close to 30, and he has grown a lot in that decade. Everything has shifted his, his perspective. He has learned God had come in and intervene for David. David has spent most of the decade from the time he was anointed and he received the promise of God. This is not what we write in our books, so please hear me. 
Who said David was going to be the king? God does through Samuel, right? David is anointed. The Spirit comes on him in power. He defeats Goliath. And then he spends a decade running, being hunted, being pursued, people trying to kill him, people betraying him all around. And the only thing he's got around him, you remember, is a a band of vagabonds that are malcontents, they're, they're angry, they are distressed, they owe a bunch of people money, and if you are David, what are you saying at that moment? Oh God, God, here I am, pick someone else. You remember in Fiddler on the Roof where Tevye is like, you know, where you're chosen people, but sometimes couldn't you choose someone else? That's what David's feeling at that moment. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, in a matter of days, Everything is shifted. It's all changed, and David is sitting there, and the men are speaking to him and saying, we want you to be the king. And David's head is twisting. He's saying, this is everything Samuel told me was going to happen. I just didn't realize there was the decade in between times. Because so often we hear and we know the promises of God, but we think hearing and receiving the promise and then getting the fulfillment of the promise happens in a moment. But it does not. So often God's ways are not ours. God says, from the seed of the woman, I'll bring forth one who will deal with the enemy and crush him. And Eve says, here's Cain. He's the one. Except he's not. He's really the seed of the serpent. And he kills his brother. And how long is it from the promise until the fulfillment? It's an entire Old Testament. Thousands of years. And the same way God tells David a promise, and it is a long, hard decade plus of exile and difficulty and pain and problem. But now, seemingly overnight, God's promises are fulfilled and David is king. And so I want you to hear, please hear this. So often, the darkest moment of despair is right before God saves, right before God delivers, right before God blesses and fulfills his promises to us. We think the darkest moment means the light is extinguished, and God says, no, dawn is about to break. Look at the disciples. They're with Jesus. Everything is going. He comes into Jerusalem. He's on the the donkey. Everybody is shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. The disciples think it's all going to be here. And then suddenly it is Thursday night and Friday and Jesus is dead. And even on Sunday morning after they've heard the report of the resurrection, they're living in gloom and they're like, we thought he was the one. But it's been three days and he's in the tomb. And meantime, salvation has happened. It's been accomplished. It's been done. Darkest moment is right before the dawn. Do not, please, the only thing we can do to botch this is in the darkest moment, believe the promise will fail. Believe the promise will not come to pass. God tells us, hold on. In the depths of your despair, I am with you you. My promise will not fail. My word will not come back to me void. I will accomplish everything I have spoken, everything I have told you, I will do. God is faithful to do that. But 
But we can say that here, but when you are in the midst of the despair and the gloom, it seems like the darkness will win. But David is an example to us. When you are, to put it in David's terms, when you are sitting in Ziklag and everything is burned and everyone is turning on you, you are certain you have missed God's promise to you. But I want you to know it is in that moment when everything is burned in Ziklag, God says, and now I'm going to fix everything. At that moment, that's what he's going to do. And you're going to turn and then you say moments later, how did this happen? And why does God do it that way? What's the one thing I can't say when it's done that way? Well, look what I did. I knew this was going to come out this way. See, and we are too prone to do that. We are all good at advertising ourselves. We are all good at believing in ourselves. So when you are sitting in Ziklag and it's all burned, God says, how's that working it out for yourself going for you? And at that moment, I realized if it's going to be done, it's going to be done by God. And so that's exactly what David teaches us. Now, how do we apply this word? How do we apply the word? Well, there's a simple question that comes to us. In my dark times, do I despair or do I seek the Father? When you're in Ziklag and it's all burned, do I despair or do I seek the Father? Last week, my question regarding all of this was, do we recognize how faithful God is? This week, I want to turn, and I want to ask us, what do I do in light of that? If God is that faithful, if God is not the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, but actually the forgiving, loving Father, what do I do when I'm in the moment of despair, when I'm in Ziklag or I'm in the pig pen? What do I do? Because notice David, thankfully, in the darkness, said, you know, this would be a good time to seek Yahweh. I mean, I've lost everything, and everybody around me is about to kill me. They're collecting stones right now. So God, if you want to act, this would be a good time. Okay? And thankfully, he did that. Thankfully, he looked. And I want you to understand, this is also, David here is being a picture of Christ. And I'm going to come and show all the parallels in just a minute. But I want you to see, Jesus did the same thing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 puts it this way. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard, why? Because of his reverent submission. This is the challenge for you and I. When I am in that dark moment, when I am in Gethsemane or Ziklag or whichever term you want to use, what is the temptation for me to do? I can get angry with God. I can only give up. I can say, God, it's your fault I'm in this mess. Where were you when I needed you? But see, the call for us is to be like Jesus and to reverently submit and to cry out to God and say, you are the only one who can save me. There is no one else who can do this for me, to do the same thing David did. And so let's unpack this question a little bit you know, to to throw some other ways of asking it. When I face times of darkness, do I despair or do I find strength in God? Because when darkness comes, that's, that's kind of the fork in the road. I can despair over the darkness. David could have just sat there until they stoned him. Okay, but he didn't. He found strength in God. Now, he can only do that not because David's righteous, but because of what 
God has done for David. But David doesn't despair. He finds strength in God. Let me ask another way of looking at it out of this period of David's life. When my fears hound me, do I look within? You remember that's what David did in that terrible verse. When David suddenly thought within himself, one of these days Saul's going to get me. And it ends up with David sitting in Ziklag burned. Okay, after 16 months of wandering. When I... When I'm hounded by my fears, do I look within or do I look outside to God to find strength in him? Everything in this culture tells you look within. And even if it's supposed to be about God, it's the divine spark within. That's all ridiculous stuff. God is found not by looking within. You're not the answer. You're the problem. Okay? I'm the problem. The answer is found by looking outside myself to God, okay? So take that self-help junk from our culture and throw it away because that's what gets you in Ziklag. That's what gets you sitting there with everything around you burned. When those fears are there, do I look inside? All that's going to lead to is more fear. Or do I look to God and say, this thing I'm afraid of, you are far bigger than, oh God. You are able to deliver me from this. When faced with crushing disappointment, I thought this was going to happen, but it doesn't. When I'm faced with crushing disappointment, do I despair and give up, or do I find strength in God in the midst of the disappointment? When friends or family desert or even attack me, the ones that I'm hoping are going to support, they've instead turned on me and are attacking me, do I strike back or do I find strength in God? David could have also in that moment tried to rally because I'm sure not all 600 men wanted to kill him. He could have probably found a small band and said, I'll start doing warfare and fighting. But that's not what he does. That's what the church does we arm up committees and get research groups and everything else. What does God want us to do in that moment? Call on him. Get on your knees. Cry out to him in prayer. The very last thing we want to do. We'll maybe appoint a couple of people to do it while the rest of us get about the other business. See, that's the wrong path. Where do I find my strength? When my own body fails me, do I complain and despair, or do I find my strength in God? It's one thing when it's outside. What do I do when my own body is failing me, and it doesn't work? And let me tell you, every one of us in here, unless Jesus returns a lot sooner than I think he's going to, everybody hearing my voice right now, one day your body is going to fail you. It happens to every one of us. It's going to happen. And the older you get, the more often that's going to become a perpetual state of affairs. And it's a chance for us to say, I can sit here and I can groan and I can complain and I can grumble or I can look to Jesus and I can find my strength in him. So in my deepest moments of distress and despair, God's saying, look to me. Find your strength in me. Because remember, as it is for David, at the very darkest moment, 
Your darkest moment when your body will fail you will be the moment of your death. That's the utter failing. And in that moment, you're going to open your eyes and see the face of your Redeemer. Darkness to dawn in the blink of an eye. And that's what happens for every one of us. God is faithful. Do we turn to him? Now, I want to conclude by really rehearsing a little bit of gospel here, and then we're going to pray. We find our strength in this. Here's the good news. As true as all of this was for David, you and I have something added on top of it. Not just the example of David. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who is our king and our priest and has done all of these things. Notice how often David is being a picture of Christ in this. Jesus is the anointed one who is persecuted and who is abandoned even by his closest companions. In a night, in a garden, they all flee, and one of his closest friends betrays him with a kiss on the cheek and hands him over. Jesus is the one who, in the midst of all of that, is crying out to God and finding his strength in God. And he is the anointed one who is delivered in the darkest moment, who goes forth, who crushes the enemies of God, who wins victory, who gets the spoils, and then delivers them to the people of God. And I remind you, when did he do all of that? It's at the cross. And if we would have all taken a poll, nobody would have said, this is the moment of Jesus' victory. I mean, he is abandoned, he is forsaken, he is scourged, he is thirsty, he is naked, he is weak, he is hanging there on the cross. Everything looks lost, and Jesus says, I'm ruling all things now. I am actually winning the victory now. What you think is darkness, what you think is utter defeat is actually total victory. I am annihilating the enemies of God as you watch. Is that not what happened? And we are told it is by the cross that he triumphed over them and he wins the spoils and he gives them to us. And as a result of that, what we're told is whenever you and I face that, we have the double assurance, not just God's covenant promise, not just the examples of David, but because of Christ, he is at the right hand of God interceding for you in the darkest moment when you think my faith will fail. And he says, fear not, my faith will not fail. I will hold on to you. And so the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, Hear these words and let them minister to your heart. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. You're in darkness, you're in gloom, and you're in despair. He has been there and he has faced it. There is one difference. He did it without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with what? confidence, boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you are here and it is gloom and it is despair, whether it's because of your body, your mind, your spirit, friends turning on you, whatever it is, the throne of grace is open to you. And you have a high priest who stands there and says, I have been there. I have felt that. I have tasted that. And I am telling you, the Father was faithful to deliver me. The Father will be faithful to deliver you.
okay? That is the gospel. And it is not because I've given you five principles this morning. You got the right book. There's only one principle, Jesus. He's it. And if you got him, you've got everything, everything. So what I want us to do, we're going to conclude this series. We're going to stand and we're going to pray together. And I want you to approach the Father. If you are in that place, come with confidence and receive grace to give you help. If you are sitting here and you're saying, man, I feel like I'm a 1,000 miles from Ziklag. I just got anointed as king. That is awesome. And what I want you to do, pray for your brothers and sisters who are sitting there and they are struggling, that they would hear the voice of our faithful God. Father, we are so grateful that when we have read this section of David's life and we have looked at this story, Father, David is not the hero. He is so up and down, good today and bad tomorrow, full of faith one moment and full of fear the next. As always, Jesus, there is only one hero, and it is you. And God, we have seen you are faithful, even when David is faithless. And so, Lord, that gives us courage because of what you have done in David's life and even more because of what we read in Hebrews there, Lord, that we can come before your throne. And so, Father, we come. Father, there are some here who feel like they're sitting in Ziklag and everything is burned. They are sitting here and it is gloom and darkness. Even their companions have turned against them. Their body is failing them and they even feel like their faith is flagging. Father God, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our great high priest, that you would come and you would sweep away the gloom and the darkness and that, Father, the dawn of your faithfulness would come upon them. Lord, I pray that they would hear and they would know in the depths of their being that you will never leave them and you will never forsake them because Jesus is at your right hand interceding for them. Father God, I pray when we have been delivered, we would be careful and faithful to give testimony and to say, my God was faithful. My God heard. My God delivered. And Father, I pray when you have delivered us and you give us spoils emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, socially, in every area, Father God, I pray that we would always remember we have been blessed to be a blessing, that we would spread those far and wide and say, look what my God has done. The Lord has given, and I am freely sharing the bounty with others. And Father, I pray particularly our deepest gloom, our deepest despair. Father, every one of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were deep in the pit of our own making and our own destruction. And you have delivered us through Jesus Christ. You have made us alive. You have raised us up into heavenly places. You have seated us at the very right hand of God, all because of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that would prompt us. I pray this week you would open doors for us to tell other people that whatever pit they are in, Jesus Christ can deliver them. That whatever their struggle, whatever their sin, Christ is more than enough. Oh God, let us, give us opportunities, 
prompt us to spread the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we are so grateful that you have been faithful to David. We are even more grateful that you were faithful through David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray you would continue to show yourself faithful to us, and we promise we will seek you, we will trust you, and we will spread and tell others our God is a faithful God. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to conclude with a word of benediction. This is a little bit longer. This is Psalm 20. And I want you to hear and to receive God's declaration of grace and presence with you and victory. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. And may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from his sanctuary and grant you support from his throne. May he remember all your sacrifices of praise and may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed so that we all may shout for joy when you are victorious and the Lord grants all your requests. Go in the peace of the Lord your God. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.